business. Certain business. Funny business. Give me that business in it. Now beat a tappy. Make it snappy. Keep me happy. Give me that business in it. Now start it. Moving easy. Pick up. Make it breezy. Hit it. Don't you tease me. Boy, don't be hiding. Don't be hiding. Keep it sliding. Keep it sliding. Now you're riding. Now you're riding. Give me that business in F.
You are listening to WETF South Bend, Indiana, the Jazz Station. This is the Jazz Focus, and my name is John Clark. I want to thank you for joining us this week. We're going to be focusing on something a little bit different. Uh, we tend to uh, look into some of the cobwebby corners, as I say, of jazz recorded history. Today we're going to be featuring the music of someone whose name you're probably not familiar with, although if you are familiar with it, it's probably under different circumstances. Uh, there's a fellow named Archie Blyer, who was well-known in the late 1920s and early 30s to dance band uh, musicians and uh, orchestra leaders as a very fine arranger. And in particular, he was an arranger of what were called stock arrangements. Stock arrangements were published orchestrations that were put out by publishing companies during that period and later as well uh, to publicize the tunes that they were coming out with. And so in that way, they could uh, create arrangements for different sized ensembles. So if you were leading a band in... Uh, Dubuque, Iowa, or Passaic, New Jersey, you could go down to the local music store or order uh, from the mail and get a, a, an arrangement for a dance orchestra of the latest pop music hits. Now, in the 1930s, uh, in the swing era, the mid to late 30s, these stock arrangements uh, came to have a pretty bad reputation. They were called cookie-cutter arrangements. They would be someone basically chained to his desk, transcribing big band recordings and simplifying them to a certain degree so your local orchestra or school band could play them, you know, play In the Mood by Glenn Miller or Sing 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 by Benny Goodman, so on and so forth. Um, in the earlier period, from the 1920s, mid-1920s to the early 1930s, these stock arrangements were often of a very high quality and could have been very challenging music. And these arrangements by Archie Blyer were pretty renowned uh, within musical circles as being on the cutting edge of jazz, if you will. Archie Blyer was a white arranger. We'll talk more about his biography after the first set, but he... Um had a way of capturing in musical notation some of the new rhythms and the feeling of jazz that some of the African-American bands were playing at the time. And uh, African-American musicians were quite effusive in their praise for Archie Blyer. If you read some of the autobiographies and interviews with musicians who were active during that period, uh, musicians such as Buck Clayton and Barney Bagard, uh, they actually remembered Archie Blyer by name 40 years after the fact, as it were. So he must have been uh, a pretty... Uh, well-respected figure during that period. The irony here is that Blair himself was not a jazz player, and he wasn't even aware that these bands were recording his arrangements. The most famous uh, recording of an Archie Blair arrangement was the Fletcher Henderson version of one of the tunes we just heard, Business in F, which was a Blair composition. And in an interview very late in his life, uh, Blair was informed that Henderson had recorded it, and he was quite surprised that it was, again, something like 45 years after the fact. So we started out with two tunes that were arranged by Archie Blyer. The first one was Business in F, and that was one of his, um, I won't say his later arrangements. It was from 1931. It was one of the later arrangements of the period that uh, uh, saw Blyer as being an influence on dance band arranging. And kind of going along with that, he had published an on... Uh, today's version would be online, but that's not what he was doing. A mail-order arranging course, and a number of... Um, People took that, including Eddie Sauter, who, of course, became a much better-known arranger, arranging for Benny Goodman and uh, his own band as well a little bit later. 
So the first tune, as I said, Business in F, was actually played by a band led by a fellow named Gene Cardos. We've done a podcast of uh, uh, Cardos's piano player, Joel Shaw. He had a number of recordings that he made with the Cardos band. This was a white band that was active uh, in the early 30s, 31, 32, 33, primarily made a lot of recordings for RCA Victor and some of the um, dime store labels at the time. And this was unusual because during the Depression, uh, recording uh, activity for most well-known bands was, if not cut off, then greatly reduced. The Cardos band came uh, to the fore at this point, and they became a very well-recorded band. Part of the reason was that they performed at a place called the Gloria Palast, which was a ballroom in the Bronxville section or actually the Yorkville section of the Bronx. Uh, and as it happened, the, ba- the um, Gloria Palast was on the first floor of the building that housed the Musicians' Union. So there was quite a lot of m- musician traffic and, and uh, business traffic going in and out of there who would stop in for a drink and listen to the Cardos Band. And arrangers such as Archie Blyer uh, were want to take their either unfinished or just finished arrangements to the Gene Cardos Band and have them play them to hear what was going on if there was something good or bad or needed to be changed or so forth. The Cardos Band was uh, well regarded as a musicianly unit. They could sight read anything. They were very adept uh, music readers and could could uh, render arrangements at sight very, very well. They also had a few pretty good soloists, although nobody who was terribly well-known or became terribly well-known. The Business in F that we just heard was recorded in December of 1931, uh, just shortly before, I think, uh, Cardo's uh, copyrighted that arrangement. And uh, we heard, in addition to Gene Cardo singing uh, on the questionable lyrics of Business and F, we heard a trombone player who probably was Milton Shaw, a very hot trombone player in there. But the real star was the arrangement. And that was a way that uh, Blyer was able to create a hot jazz feeling uh, in the arrangement. So that way, if you had a band that didn't have any soloists or couldn't improvise or whatever, you could give a pretty convincing imitation of hot jazz just by playing the notes of the arrangement. And that's the reason, above all others, that Blyer was so highly regarded at the time. The second tune we heard was a kind of a nondescript uh, pop tune that was actually kind of a nice little pop tune uh, called When Polly Walks Through the Hollyhocks. That was a tune by Harry Woods from 1929, and we heard a recording by a great uh, band, a white band led by Ben Burney, um, the old maestro. He had uh, a very hot band at the Hotel Roosevelt at that time and uh, featured some very good soloists, as we heard there. There were two versions of this tune cut in July of 1928 for Brunswick. I picked the one that did not have the vocal, go figure, and it actually had an extra solo, which was more or less a duet between the trumpet player Phil Hart and the trombone player Paul Wigan. Uh, we also heard in there the C-melody saxophone of Jack Pettis, who was the kind of standout musician in Ben Burney's band. And he recorded a whole series of uh, sides under his own name that used the Ben Burney band. But it was a very hot band that used some very interesting arrangements, very often by the piano player, Al Goring. But, as I said, this one was definitely an Archie Blyer arrangement. Sometimes reading the early jazz literature, you hear or you see that uh, thus and such was an arranger for whatever band, and you listen to those band's recordings, and they were in fact stock arrangements. And sometimes the hotter arrangements were Archie Blyer's. So we're going to go on and uh, do another set of Archie Blyer things. We're going to be featuring a lot of different bands, African-American bands, white bands, comedy tunes, novelty tunes, jazz tunes, to give you an idea of the range of the songs that uh, Blyer was called on to uh, 
to publish or to, to submit for publication, I should say. The next tune is a tune by uh, Harold Arlen and Jack Yellen, and it was published by Alan uh, or uh, Edgar Yellen and Hart, the uh, publishing company that was active, very active, on the scene in New York at the time. And Archie Blyer did quite a bit of work for them, although he was really a freelancer. He did um, uh, arrangements for virtually every publishing company that uh, existed uh, during that period. Uh, and as I said, uh, actually, the, the publishing company was Agar Yellen and Bornstein. That was the company that was uh, the most famous one in New York at the time. And this particular tune uh, was recorded by quite a few bands. The uh, Probably the most famous recording of that, again, was Fletcher Henderson's recording, uh, which we're going to hear on another podcast. There are so many great Archie Blyer arrangements, I've decided I'm going to do a two-parter here. So this first one is going to be on uh, WETF, and then if you'd like to tune into our podcast, The Jazz Focus, which you can access on Anchor.fm, I will have this and the second part of the Archie Blyer uh, survey, if you will. So this version of Sweet and Hot will be done by a band that was led by the drummer Ben Pollock. He was from Chicago. He was a white band leader. He had played with the uh, New Orleans Rhythm Kings in the early 20s, and he put together a dance band that featured quite a lot of hot music by the mid-20s. Uh, he came to New York uh, a couple of years later, 1927-28, with a band that had, among others, uh, Benny Goodman on clarinet, uh, Jimmy McPartland on cornet, uh, had Glenn Miller on trombone, lots of... Uh, soon-to-be well-known hot musicians. This particular recording is going to feature the playing and the singing of Jack Teagarden. And this comes from 1930, the Ben Pollock Sweet and Hot. Then we're going to go to a different type of band, uh, a Phil Baxter tune called Harmonica Harry. Uh, this was a pretty popular tune, novelty tune at the time, and uh, Blyer arranged quite a few of these. We're going to hear a few of them, and he still managed to extract some good hot music from <laughs> these uh, very unlikely sources. And this was one of the reasons, as I said, that he, his arrangements were good sellers. You know, a band that didn't have too much uh, hot component to it could uh, give you a pretty convincing imitation of a hot jazz band by playing Archie Blyer arrangements. And this arrangement of Harmonica Harry we're going to hear was recorded by the entertainer Ted Lewis. He played clarinet. He had been on some of the very earliest jazz recordings from the 1910s, uh, but he became known as a novelty and a vaudeville clarinet player. Um, however, he had a band that often had some very good jazz musicians in it. And we're going to hear a solo by Muggsy Spanier, the great Chicago cornet player who was with the Ted Lewis band for about eight or nine years in the late 20s and into the early 30s. We're also going to hear in the ensemble parts George Brunus on trombone, and I think Jimmy Dorsey on clarinet as well. But that will be Ted Lewis and his band. Then we're going to do two tunes. I'll tell you more about those when we get to the uh, other side of this set. Uh, 11.30 Saturday night, which will be done by an African-American band led by a fellow named Fess Williams. He's a good counterpart or a counterpoise to Ted Lewis. He's, he was known as the Black Ted Lewis, in fact, and we'll see why. And then we're going to finish up that set with a one of uh, Blyer's first published arrangements, When Sweet Susie Goes Steppin' By, which will be recorded by a Chicago band led by the female bass player Thelma Terry. So those are our four tunes for this set, Sweet and Hot, uh, performed by Ben Pollock and his Park Central Orchestra, Harmonica Harry, Ted Lewis and his band, 11.30 Saturday night, Fess Williams and his Royal Flush Orchestra, and When Sweet Susie Goes Steppin' By by Thelma Terry and her Playboys. Man, man, why don't you play something sweet? Because everybody wants it hot, that's why. Lord, they know, they want it sweet. All right, then, play it sweet and hot. 
Versatile, 
But wait till you see. What a style, so easy and free. I see him coming now. Come on up here, boy, and take a little bow. Come on and meet Harry. Harry, Harry, that harmonica key. <laughs> You're going to like Harry. Oh, he plays a mean thing. Oh, say, when he gets hot. Come on, buddy. Oh, what a treat. Oh, Judas, you simply got, got to beat your feet like this. Oh, make that train blow. Come on, imitate birds. Oh, say, plays a solo too. Too pretty for words. Why, when he starts tooting, there ain't a chance. Come on, start rooting for one more dance. My Harry, 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 that harmonica key. Oh, Harry.
That last tune we heard was the first arrangement that Blyer ever published. It was for the Bebo Bloden and Long Company uh, in 1928, When Sweet Susie Goes Stepping By, uh, that was composed, I think, by Irving Bebo, who was part of that uh, group that ran that company, obviously. And that was done by Thelma Terry and her Playboys, or actually Thelma Terry and her Boyfriends, in that case. That was a Chicago group that uh, was a good dance band, had a couple of well-known players. We heard a piano solo by Bob Zerke, who later was much better known, playing with the Bob Crosby Band and then with his own orchestra. Uh, there's a tenor sax, Pat Davis, who was uh, later to play with the Casaloma Band, shortly thereafter. And uh, we also heard uh, Warren Smith on trombone, who was better known later for Bob Crosby Associations and so forth. Thelma Terry was a bass player, uh, one of the few female uh, band leaders or instrumentalists at the time, and uh, she comes across as a very effective bass player. So that was recorded in September of 1928. And before that, we heard the tune I mentioned, 11.30 Saturday Night, which was composed by a West Coast band leader named Earl Burtnett. And that was, this tune was recorded in this Archie Blyer arrangement by numerous bands. I picked the one that was done by uh, Fess Williams and his Royal Flush Orchestra. As I said, Fess Williams was an African-American clarinet player who was very much on the novelty side, as you heard during his solo there. He had a few pretty good jazz players in his band, uh, most notably the piano player, Hank Duncan, a great stride piano player. And we heard a, uh, uh, a vocal by Frank Marvin in that case. And uh, as I said, many bands were using these Blyer arrangements to create the illusion of hot playing. And even an African-American band like Fess Williams would use the arrangement uh, because it uh, 
sounded so good just being played straight without any major uh, emendations or, or additions or what have you. Uh, there were quite a few African-American musicians, as I mentioned earlier, who mentioned Blyer by name, even 40 years later. Barney Bagard, Buck Clayton, Clyde Bernard, the trombone player, um, Horace Henderson, Jonah Jones. If you read their uh, recollections, they uh, literally remembered uh, specific arrangements by Archie Blyer. So clearly these were uh, very popular in their day. So we started out that set with Sweet and Hot by Ben Pollock and his orchestra. It was a little bit later than the Park Central Orchestra I announced, and it featured Jack Teagarden singing, playing trombone. Benny Goodman was playing clarinet on that, and some of the future members of the Bob Crosby band. We had Eddie Miller on tenor sax, Gil Roden on alto sax, Gil Bowers on piano, Nappy Lamar on guitar. He also sang or did the high-pitched uh, introduction vocal at the beginning of the recording. And uh, we also heard Ben Pollock uh, singing. I don't believe he was playing drums on that one. I think that was Ray Baduke. And then following that, we heard Harmonica Harry by Ted Lewis, the novelty white clarinet player. But we heard a very hot solo in the middle there by Muggsy Spanier on cornet. So we're going to move on to some more uh, very fine uh, Archie Blyer arrangements. We're going to start with a tune called Is That Religion? There's several recordings of this arrangement, and they're all very different. Here we get into uh, some elements of, of uh, stock arranging adaptation uh, called doctoring the stocks. We're going to hear a, a version by the great Duke Ellington band of this particular arrangement, and it clearly is the Blyer arrangement. It was obviously something that maybe not obviously, but something that was brought out on this particular recording date, um, as was another Blyer arrangement, The Peanut Vendor. These were uh, recordings that were done by Ellington and uh, uh, his famous orchestra for Mellotone in January of 1931. Is That Religion has a vocal by Frank Marvin, who we just heard with the Fess Williams Band. So you can see how these studio vocalists got around. We're going to hear some excellent Harry Carney on baritone sax, um, as well as uh, a tenor sax solo by Barney Bagard. This uh, doesn't have, other than the soloist, it doesn't have a really uh, definitive Duke Ellington sound. Clearly they hadn't uh, worked this arrangement up to much beyond the stock arrangement. Uh, an interesting thing is the lead alto in the saxophone section is not Johnny Hodges. Hodges was not known as a great music reader, so if this was an arrangement that they were sight reading, presumably Harry Carney would have taken over that duty, and uh, does sound more like him in this case. Blyer's writing for the saxophones was pretty pretty good by standards of the day. We heard a very nice saxoli chorus on When Sweet Susie Goes Steppin' By. And uh, he had a short-lived um, uh, column for Metronome magazine uh, that talked about uh, different elements of arranging. I think it was called Arranging Questions, and he addressed a lot of these different issues. So after uh, Is That Religion, which we're going to hear in another version on part two of our Archie Blyer podcast, by the way, we're going to go to a tune called Who's Blue? And this was done by King Oliver's band. It was actually a band that was uh, led by Oliver's perhaps nephew, Dave Nelson, a trumpet player. And this was a group that he was appearing with in Harlem and that Oliver took over for a couple of recording dates, actually a couple of Oliver's last recording dates in 1931. And quite a number of these tunes that this band recorded, both under Oliver's name and Dave Nelson's name, were Archie Blyer stock arrangements. And this Who's Blue is a good example of a jazz arrangement by Blyer. We're going to hear some great clarinet playing by Buster Bailey, some of his best on record. 
record from that period. Uh, some of the other tunes that they recorded uh, were I Ain't Got Nobody and Loveless Love. And One More Time, I believe, also was a uh, Blyer arrangement. But we're going to stick with Who's Blue. After that, we're going to go to a, a sort of a nondescript tune uh, that may have been a uh, perceived of as a, as a comedy novelty tune called Oh, It Looks Like Rain. And that's a uh, tune that uh, we will hear Fletcher Henderson and his Connie's Inn Orchestra do. This was during the kind of uh, interregnum between when Don Redman and Benny Carter left the band. Uh, they were their chief arrangers, and b before Fletcher and Horace Henderson took over arranging duties. So they were doing a lot of these kind of weird stock arrangements, uh, which they adapted somewhat, although this particular one they didn't need to. It's a very hot arrangement featuring a kind of a silly vocal by Dick Robertson, but a magnificent saxophone solo by Coleman Hawkins. After that, we're going to finish up with a tune called Little Joe, and uh, that will be by Louis Armstrong and his orchestra. Armstrong recorded, again, a number of Blyer arrangements. He, uh, his band was not a great band in 1930-31, and these arrangements were, were good showcases for his own playing, which was kind of the point of Louis Armstrong records at the time. So those are our four tunes right now. We're going to hear Is That Religion, Duke Ellington and his orchestra, his famous orchestra, Who's Blue by King Oliver and his orchestra, It Looks Like Rain, by Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra, and Little Joe, Louis Armstrong. Just strut the aisle, all dressed to kill with style. You wink your eye and smile, is that religion? One thing I do despise, you catch my deacon's eyes, and that's where the weakness lies, is that religion? You see your parson's vexed, and you got him so perplexed that his mind ain't on his text. Now tell me, is that religion? There's some cheating gonna be dead, and you all done took off the list. Trying to get your parson to skid is that religion?
Oh, it looks like rain. Oh, oh, but I won't complain. No, no, what a break, old Jean, for baby and me. We gotta stay home tonight. Oh, it looks like rain outside, so we just remain inside in a big armchair. The weather is fair, we gotta stay home tonight. Can't be going places, but oh, what things we can do. Getting down to cases, we could play cards, but would you have a made it plain? No, no, well, it looks like rain. Oh, oh, you can get all wet, but brother, I'm set, we gotta stay home tonight. Joe, son, you're my little pride and joy. 
your papa's little colored sunny boy.
So we did an extra one in there, an Archie Blyer arrangement of a Charles Tobias tune called I Lost My Gal from Memphis. It was recorded by quite a few bands. Uh, this was a tune that was actually remembered by Jonah Jones, a great trumpet player, as a, a stock that was being played by a band led by Paul Tremaine back in 1930. And this was recorded by Bubber Miley and his mileage makers. This was Bubber Miley, the great uh, African-American trumpet player who had played with Duke Ellington's early bands. He had left by that time. They had had a parting of the ways, and Miley had several groups of his own. This was recorded in May of 1930, featured in addition to Miley on trumpet, Ward Pinkett playing the open trumpet solo, Wilbur de Paris on trombone, Hilton Jefferson on alto sax, Happy Caldwell on tenor, Earl Frazier on piano, Bernard Addison on banjo, Bill Benford on bass, or tuba actually, and Tommy Benford on drums, and we heard the ubiquitous Frank Marvin on vocals on that. So Frank Marvin certainly got around. Before that, we heard a uh, version of, uh, oh, uh, excuse me, Little Joe by Louis Armstrong and his orchestra. And as I mentioned, Louis Armstrong recorded quite a few stocks. Uh, his, his bands were not noted for precise playing at this point or, or any great innovations other than backing up Armstrong's matchless trumpet playing and vocals. And this tune, uh, Little Joe... Uh, was something that was recorded in uh, April of 1931 for OK in Chicago, and the band uh, was the one that uh, Armstrong had with Zillner Randolph on trombone, or trumpet rather, Preston Jackson on trombone, and uh, quite a few other players as well. Nobody terribly well-known, but mostly Chicago-based musicians. Before that, we heard that steaming arrangement uh, or performance of arrangement of It Looks Like Rain. Oh, It Looks Like Rain is the precise title of that. And that was one of those stock arrangements that Fletcher Henderson uh, was recording at that point, uh, 1931 in July in this case, for Victor, a uh, vocal by Dick Robertson in this case. That featured a fantastic solo by Coleman Hawkins on tenor sax and also some very good trumpet or cornet actually by Rex Stewart. So leading up to that, we heard uh, Louis Armstrong's mentor, King Oliver, doing a tune called Who's Blue that also featured Buster Bailey on clarinet. And uh, that was done at the same time, another Blyer arrangement. And we started out, as I mentioned, with Is That Religion by Duke Ellington and his orchestra from that same period, featuring Harry Carney and Joe Nanton on trombone and uh, Barney Bagard on tenor sax. So uh, an unusual recording of the Ellington band recording a stock arrangement, still making it sound good and making it sound somewhat Ellington-ish, but uh, definitely not some of the Duke's work in that case. So we have time for two more, and I hope you've been enjoying this Archie Blyer program. This gives us quite a cross-section of dance band music of the 1920s and late 20s and early 30s, black and white bands, all playing the arrangements of Archie Blyer. And as I mentioned, if you'd like to hear another uh, set of Archie Blyer tunes, take a listen to my podcast, The Jazz Focus, on Anchor.fm. You can get it on Spotify and Apple Music as well. And... Uh, I'm going to finish off with a novelty tune called Uncle Joe's Music Store. This is a kind of a, a funny tune that uh, was recorded by Joe Hames and his orchestra. I'm going to be doing a podcast on Joe Hames coming up uh, at some point. His, that was a white band that uh, recorded between 1932 and about 1937 or so. The early version of the band, uh, which uh, we're going to be hearing on this particular uh, tune from 1933, was really quite a hot jazz band. We're going to hear Ward Silloway on trombone, 
probably Pee Wee Irwin on trumpet. He, that was his first well-known band. Johnny Mintz on clarinet, Dick Clark on, on tenor sax, and uh, Mike Doty on alto sax. Much of this band ended up uh, with Tommy Dorsey a few years later, or a couple of years later, I should say. So Uncle Joe's Music Store will also feature a vocal by Joe Hames, the leader of the band and an excellent arranger in his own right, but here using an Archie Blyer arrangement. Then we're going to finish up with a really... Uh, terrific arrangement of the old standard tune Loveless Love, published by W.C. Handy, but probably a much older tune than that. Uh, this was an arrangement that was clearly well thought of by musicians at the time. It was recorded numerous times by very good jazz bands, including King Oliver's and uh, Red Nichols. Jack Teagarden recorded it. We're going to uh, hear another version of this in our next Archie Blyer podcast, but the one we're going to finish up with today was by Noble Sissel, the singer who uh, had toured with U.B. Blake in the 1910s and 20s. He had an excellent hot jazz uh, dance band in the late 1920s and 30s. And this tune uh, was recorded on February 24th, 1931 for Brunswick. Features um, Demas Dean and Tommy Ladnier on trumpet. Tommy Ladnier plays the trumpet solo. Billy Burns on trombone. Um, we have uh, Frank Goody, I think, on clarinet. Rudy Jackson on alto. Uh, Ralph Duquesne also on alto, Raymond Uzera on um, tenor sax. Actually, Frank uh, Goudier is not in this band. He stayed in Europe uh, when the Sissel Band came back, and he was replaced by none other than Sidney Bechet. We're going to hear a Sidney Bechet soprano solo at the very end of this tune, but in the midst of it, you're going to hear some low rumblings, and that's Bechet playing bass sax. He uh, uh, played uh, bass sax in this band, sort of doubled the bass and played some other parts. He wasn't a great reader, but he could make up parts that were uh, better than the written parts. And we're going to hear, of course, Noble Sissel singing. And this is Loveless Love. Gives us a little uh, precursor to swing. We have a great four-beat rhythm section featuring uh, Edward Coles on bass. And uh, we'll hear some marvelous jazz on this one. So this will be uh, Loveless Love, uh, the last Archie Blyer tune of the day. We hope you've enjoyed this program. This is the Jazz Focus here on WETF, South Bend, Indiana, the Jazz Station. I'm your host, John Clark and hope to meet you again on these airways.
for I left it there myself. So let's all sneak away for a happy holiday down in old Uncle Joe's music store. Oh 